that's why we got in contact with The Guardian to get our side of the story out because we felt it was wrong for a free speech initiative supposedly by and for young people to have consistently ignored the wishes of a large chunk of the people involved in the project. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. Free speech has dominated the national narrative in the media and political arena. The government have announced a free speech bill and appointed a free speech czar. What is free speech? Who owns it? And where do we draw the line? In the last few weeks, we've seen GB News launch to take on what they see as a cancel culture. Ironically, they took one of their presenters off and expelled them after he took the knee and announced he supported Black Lives Matter. This week, we talked to Harry Walker from the Bristol Free Speech Society. So let's just talk a bit about the organisation that you're involved in. Uh, so what made you get involved in the first place? So initially, it, the society made an impression on me in the Freshers' Fair. I was excited because it was a brand new society and the members of the committee that I met on Freshers did a really good job of making me as someone who at that time was 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 very much into leftist politics but still felt as if I was slightly on the margins of certain elements of the discourse at that time. And they very much encouraged me to come and take part in it. I was slightly apprehensive that the Free Speech Society would just be a stand-in for the right-wing discussion society, but I found that I, I really enjoyed it. Basically, I've been going ever since and decided at the end of my first year I'd like to run for a committee position, ended up as president and now vice president, taking a bit more of a backseat as I go into my last year. And how does it look? Do you have regular kind of debates, discussions, forums? We normally have two kind of events. We have the discussion events, which are like pub discussion format. We've been doing those over Zoom. And then the other kind of event that we've been having is a speaker event. Take questions from the audience and give a presentation on a particular field that obviously they are um, involved with. And is that usually a field that has some uh, area of contention or is con- controversial that, that sort of fits into the... Of course, kind of yeah. speech debate, yeah. The, one of the reasons it's a big kind of topic, and increasingly so, is that the universities in general, I think it kind of started in the States, really, and it's come over here in the last sort of couple of years. Mm-hmm. I guess an offshoot of the culture wars is around free speech and is around what you can and cannot say, and the universities are, you know, in, in the midst of no-platforming people or not allowing any sort of discourse or opinion or argument counter to that and and you know one big thing that has happened i guess in response to that is around the start of this year gavin williams from the government has basically announced a free speech champion which is sort of directly related directly or indirectly related to what's going on 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 university campuses so what was your response when you heard this ultimately my initial reaction to seeing the champion was cynicism bearing in mind all of the immeasurable issues that university students have had to face, you know, especially over the pandemic. It just came across to me as such a a cop-out response from a government who could really have have made quite a big difference in the lives of students. It could have invested real money and resources into the issues that really affect students. And to me, it just feels like something inexpensive they can just kind of use in order to (laughs) rally their, their political base, really. But I've not seen any evidence that suggests that Gavin Williamson consulted students. Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, there have been 
a number of cancellations of talks or speakers at universities, yes. in- including at Bristol University, haven't there? Just one springs to light. I've been looking at your article in the tab, and there was a walkout of hundreds of Muslim students in response to a talk by somebody called Emma Fox. I would firstly say, absolutely, there have been issues with deplatforming at university. It has happened. And, and like you say, it has happened at Bristol. But the reason that that event that you're talking about was, wasn't was because of the nature of the speaker. It was because of the university being unable to facilitate the event to go ahead safely based on the number of people who had said they would be coming to protest the event. We actually did manage to have that event go ahead, which was the right thing to have done. I'm very pleased that we could have that dialogue with the university, safely facilitate the event. But it's still distinctively different from the way it's portrayed by those who want to use these kind of... The university cancelled this event based on the fact that they did not like what the speaker was saying. It's a bit more nuanced than simply, oh, they didn't want to look bad, so they just pulled it straight away. The event then happened later. There was a protest, a smaller protest than the one that was planned, but there was security in place for it. It was all very friendly, you know, I chatted with some of the protesters, we disagreed, but, you know, that's free speech. Well, we've had something quite recently. I guess what we're talking about really is kind of cancel culture. And that is a word that's kind of banded about a bit and very much directed largely uh, until relatively recently at the left. But we have had an example in the last week (laughs) on GB News when Guto Harry took the knee live on telly and he's immediately been taken off air and removed. So lots of people on the left now feel emboldened and I use the left in inverted commas that has kind of said, hang on a minute, you're the first people to cry and shout cancel culture and you've gone and done exactly the same thing. The left is by no means like, oh, we're a big happy family that all agree on stuff. Yes, it's absolutely true that a lot of people on the left, myself included, feel very vindicated about what we've been saying about, well, actually, not everyone. There are absolutely those individuals on the right who are sincere in their upholding freedom of speech. But for a lot of people, it is simply yet another tool in the culture war. And ultimately, for GB News, I mean, it it comes down to to money, really, in in my view. And for me, that's something that's missing from this whole conversation about free speech is actually the influence that money can have on on shaping debates and shaping conversations. Fundamentally, GB News made a financial decision by sacking the presenter. And now they've got Nigel Farage, who will bring in considerably more views. Is that okay? I mean, the argument, I mean, I know I know that a lot of people will immediately go, oh my God, you know, because I think he's now got a regular show, hasn't he, five days a week. He's got the prime time show. Prime, yeah. prime time show. There is a quite strong held view within the left that someone like Farage should be cancelled. And I think there is a position of a little bit of hypocrisy from people of the left on issues like this when, you know, you can't just have people you agree with, you know, representing views all the time. No, 100%. But with respect, I also think there is sometimes cancellation can be misconstrued for criticism. You know, I'm sure there are people on the left who would say, yeah, we should (laughs) cancel Nigel Farage and, I don't know, I guess boycott GB News. But the reality of that is those people, they're not going to be able to to make a difference anyway. I think that's a good point. I think you're right. There's a difference between cancellation and criticism. The two get conflated, sometimes knowingly. Um, The bastions of free speech you know, when I was more involved in activism was very much the left. Um, mm. And it was the right that was seen as the people that sort of shut down, you know, activism and shut down kind of dissidents and all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of like the wheel is kind of turned a bit and we've just find ourselves in this slightly odd place now where you've got 
the leading proponents of free speech, which has come a bit, I think, across from America. People like, you know, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, in this country, mm. you know, uh, Douglas Murray, they're all of the right. But I guess... Again, uh, how, do, how do we end up here? It depends what... Because I think they're... I think everyone really, and, and leftists do think free speech is important. You know, absolutely, I wouldn't... Especially when it comes to optics, I would 100% agree that the left has, has not been doing enough to champion mm. uh, or, or make the arguments for, for freedom of speech and yeah. has kind of left that space for for the right. And even people from the left making the journey to the right. Where I think this started to happen, uh, if you sort of go back a bit, was when you've had protesters like Peter Tatchell, you know, intellectual thinkers like Christopher Hitchens, who were attacking some... Uh, elements of particular faith groups or they were they went against the orthodoxy when it came to the Iraq war progressive I, I hesitate to use the word progressive but progressive kind of causes and what was kind of happening is that they would oppose fascism period regardless of I guess cultural relativism you know Peter Tatchell is somebody I'm sure you know LGBT plus campaigner who would fiercely go to countries with Sharia law and protest against um, the death penalty be given to gay people and would call that mm. out ferociously and suddenly he was being told he's Islamophobic Christopher Hitchens the same a little bit so there has been a sort of a journey from some of these people like what happened is people of the left started to make excuses yeah. for fascism on the basis of where people were from, just to, because they were sort of treading on eggshells and a little bit frightened to to call it out. And for me, that was where the chasm started. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's there's there's certainly a lot to that. I mean, I think with something like religion, right, is, is a good example. The left is always in a difficult position where it comes to something like Islam, for example, which is a religion that is a minority in this country, and, and so therefore the knee jerk kind of reaction is to defend criticism of of a minority, despite the fact that. Certainly, in my view, um, there are some pretty problematic um, uh, Islamic beliefs that that warrant criticism and that can be criticised in a, you know, in a in a way that is not racist. It's you know not racist to criticise or to discuss critically the beliefs of an organised religion. There's no racial component to that. So I definitely think this sort of identitarian. That's the good point. Identitarian. I think when identity politics came in, I think it split the left a bit on some of these issues. I mean, it's interesting that you're talking about it from your perspective of, I guess, grassroots activism, because for me, uh, you know, I, I'm a bit younger. So yeah. I experienced that through the Internet sure. um, and through I don't know if you're aware of YouTube atheism. Uh, yeah. Yeah. For me, that was a huge thing in sort of 2016 was when, you know, I was always left wing. But, you know, these these kind of free speech discussions came up and it was very much like, yeah, the SJWs and the feminazis are trying to take away our free speech mm -hmm. and the free speech of uh, of gamers, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're trying to police the media that can go into games and whatnot. And from my perspective, that was, that was when the conversation really changed in a certain direction. It, it's kind of like the alt-right pipeline was part of it, but I don't know if that's specifically relevant to free speech, but for me, I, I was I, I always stayed like left of center, even though I, I would have identified as anti-feminist, anti-SJW. Yeah. Um, ironically, now sixteen-year-old me would definitely call the twenty-two-year-old me an SJW. Um, but, <laughs> okay, um, so you move, you shifted a bit. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, and that and that's what's been interesting about uni. Really, is mm. actually coming in and being in the free speech society and actually chatting to people on the right, on you know further to the left of me, actually 
did push me further to the left. So having that open conversation really did move me. Because I would imagine your perception of a lot of people of the left, in your words, SJW, which is social justice warrior, for those that don't know what that is. I think there is a stereotype, you know, based on some truth that everyone of the left is kind of like that. When I think you're probably right. Once you start to meet more people, have conversations, there's loads of us that are pro-free speech. Yeah. And actually, I would, you know, hold it to the light and let's have a conversation and let's and let's challenge that. And I do think that perhaps there are, and I don't, I, I want to kind of ask you this really, whether you do feel that the social justice warrior kind of movement, uh, so to speak, has that almost been partly responsible for the rise of alt right in many regards, driven people in that direction? I, I would say no. I think that those people were always like the most they ever were were cringy and annoying. Mm-hmm. They were never, they never ever leveraged any kind of political clout. Like, it was the internet back in that time, right? It was it was viral clips, cringe, this idea of cringe, this idea of lacking self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And yeah, young teenagers, maybe a bit awkward and, and not quite sure of themselves, often are going to be prime material for cringe, right? Yeah. So I think that quite honestly, it was the, the exploitation of, of that content that pushed people over to the right. And, and it definitely worked though, didn't it? Because I, one thing I will say is that whole kind of movement, which was quite fringe, it became mainstream in the first in America. It seems to have been effective, I guess, disenfranchised, disengaged young people that would traditionally have probably 50 years ago, you know, joined more left-leaning organisations are going in the other direction. Honestly, uh, for me, so much of it is just down to the, the algorithms on YouTube, honestly. <laughs> like, I do just think that that kind of content really found its way to, to be able to use the algorithms and so, you know, content that was reasonably uh, moderate that you could start on that was, you know, maybe accessible for left and right would always end up leading to the right. It would yeah. never lead leftwards, I suppose. Whereas now, you know, I do think that's different. Actually, a lot of the kind of grassroots content creation is left of centre and that you're seeing lots of people who, who, who will be like, yeah, you know, I was alt-right. I was sort of... Oh, P- oh really? So people are drifting back... Oh, 100%. Right, I mean, if okay, looking, that's interesting. If you, look yeah. at, if you look at the figures like, um, I mean, have you, are you familiar with BreadTube? No, no. So BreadTube is kind of, it, it's sort of a bit of a joke, but it's kind of like leftist YouTube. Yeah. Um, and if you look at prominent BreadTubers at the moment, they're just exploding in popularity. I mean, okay. ContraPoints, Vosh, Hassan Piker, these are all content creators who, since Trump's presidency and really over the election, have yeah. absolutely exploded. Um, and you know that's partly due to yeah, to changing trends, I, I and it's mean, also partly to do with the algorithm. I think. I think yeah, and, I, and I think actually, I'll probably contradict myself a bit here, but actually, on reflection, I, I, it probably isn't young people. I mean, you know, I'm sure there's some. It's, it, it's actually, if you look at the kind of core base, when you get a chance to see these people at events, they're they're usually quite middle aged, actually. Yeah, and 100%. they're the ones who are being kind of, um, what's the word, uh, kind of. exploited or influenced or uh, kind of worked on a bit. If you look at um, the demographics on issue to issue on policy, um, it's very clear that the biggest divide is age um, by far. I mean, it's also rural versus urban, but in terms of individual um, kind of um, politics, as it were. Yeah. um, Yeah. If you go LGBT, you go, you know, sort of race, immigration, these kind of things the views really start to sway and change. when you... Which is partly also my, my previous point when I said about the left being responsible for the rise in the right, is I think that if it's not presented right, and I think if there is an over-obsession on some of those identity issues, that kind of 
sort of pisses off some of these sort of like middle aged yeah. blokes. They just feel alienated up on from South that. Park. Yeah, and, and they're they're going, Oh, this is a load of bloody nonsense and they're moving yeah. the opposite direction. So it's almost yeah. like that's why I think it's really important for people like yourself and others that have a an expression and a connection to the left to also be able to listen to other opinions and, and you know you're somebody who's embodied to free speech. That's important because it pushes back at that narrative. Yeah. Well that that's I mean that's why I made some of the decisions I have done since being in the society. I mean, I, I always felt that it was something that was fundamentally missing from the free speech dynamic was people inside that kind of free speech clique to be like, yeah, I'm pro free speech and academic freedom, but I'm also a leftist. And and not only that, but I can see benefits for leftist causes to champion freedom of expression and, and inclusivity. You know, for me, freedom of speech isn't just who can shout the loudest in a room. It's also things like access to the space and equity. Yeah. You know, for example, like transgender people are often excluded from, from you know, marginalized in society, right? And therefore you can argue that being pro freedom of speech is actually ensuring that a transgender person has, has, has access to, yeah. to a particular space or yeah. is encouraged to be put forward in a discussion and kind of... Well, it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to be pro-free speech and anti-no-platforming when you mm. are, you know, some of the names I ratted off, you know, and I don't want to play identity politics too much, but most of those names are, you know, people like Murray, Harris, you know, Peterson, they're all they're all white, they're all fairly well off, they're all, I would say, relatively at least middle class. Um, yeah. And, you know, they're not in any oppressed group that might have to be a bit scared or fearful about some, yes, you know, some, some kind said. of right groups talking about them and, and in fear of yeah. incitement against them. And, that, and that's no coincidence. I mean, there are some people like Candice Owens, and, you know, that's not entirely true. There are kind of black voices, but on the whole, it is driven by kind of older white rich men isn't it <laughs> i think yeah no totally and i think it's because free speech is something that is so intrinsic to democracy to mm. kind of i mean i hate saying stuff like this but i suppose western values yeah right um i did an air quotes when i said that yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so therefore it, it makes more sense to say oh no we don't want to come out and say yes we we as as conservatives want to be able to bash trans people without receiving criticism for it instead it's oh no, but it's free speech. And to a certain extent, I mean, that you know, there are elements of it that are, yeah, it is kind of free speech to do that. It is free speech. But I don't necessarily think that that that's necessarily a good enough reason. And certainly, certainly it's also equally free speech to receive that backlash, right? Like if you're going to make a certain comment about any given issue, you deserve to be criticised for that. And we're in danger of agreeing with each other too much, I think, in this conversation, to be honest. But I think that actually it's also freedom of gesture and expression, isn't it? We've just come off the back of the Euros where, um, you know, we've had uh, lots of football fans booing the taking of mm. the knee, which is something yeah. that the players, regardless of whether you believe that BLM is a Marxist organisation or not, these are young footballers, you know, and a lot of black and mixed race footballers that have taken that decision to take the knee themselves and yeah. being booed by, dare I say, probably a large section of people that would probably be against no platforming and, and, and against mm -hmm. cancel culture yeah, and all exactly. that stuff. And, and they're doing exactly the same thing exactly. that they're proposing that they're, exactly. they stand against. Yeah, no, I mean, completely. I mean, you know, where's, what about their freedom of speech? No, something like, something like taking the knee is the most mild mannered protest against racism. It's not a protest even against like the British state, simply a protest against racism. 
And yet, you know, there are still an immense number of people on the yeah, right who are triggered. Yeah. It's really sad that we're downstream of America's culture, America's democracy being one of the most polarized and toxic in the Western world. Yeah. Like it is truly, truly tragic that that's the way that the UK is going. The whole third amendment, because that's one thing we need to be aware of is when we're having a conversation about free speech. You know, we're talking about the UK here, you know, depending on which country you go to, there are various degrees mm. of difference. You know, they do have a Third Amendment right in the States. And First just, Amendment. Sorry, First Amendment right, apologies. Um, and that does kind of give a little bit more room and space to perhaps be a little bit more risky and push the boat out more than we will here. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's yeah, good and absolutely. bad. It's good and bad, I guess. Yeah. It, it is good and bad. And you can also say, like, uh, for me, I, I, I look a lot at American politics. And as a lefty, you can mm. also say, like, actually being downstream from American politics maybe isn't always such a bad thing. Like, we definitely take stuff and, and should take, you know, the left should take things from the American left as well, I think. Um, there's so many similarities between, between our two countries, between our electoral systems, for example, which mm. are, you know, very majoritarian, first past the post. So something like that will inherently build division and build polarization by very nature of the system. You're either one or the other. You're the blue team or the red team. And yeah. the people who can, you know, whether it's in the media or anything else, like the people who can draw the eyeballs are the people who say like the most outrageous yeah. stuff, I guess. And I think this is the kind of hub of, if you really drill into why this is happening, is because there is a kind of clash now. I think the internet's come along, as you said, there is, there has been, what, up until COVID, you know, far more freedoms of travel. The world is smaller. We are more interconnected because, you know, there's parts in the Middle East where free speech is completely different as, as there are, you know, if you lived in Moscow now, you know, or you lived in Shanghai, it's very yeah. different to living here. Yeah. So we also need to be aware that in many regards, you know, UK, you, know, you have far more free speech rights here than you do other places. However, this is something that, I, I think is being debated everywhere. Where is the line? And I suppose in this country, you, you have to go to law. So I think it's probably going to be useful for us if I just read out some yeah, actual free speech laws. So under Article 10 of the Human Rights Act 1998, everyone has the right to freedom of expression in the UK, but the law states that this freedom may be subject to formalities, conditions, restrictions, or penalties, mm -hmm. and unnecessary in a democratic society. Yeah. There are a number of different UK laws that outlaw hate speech. Among them is Section 4 of the Public Order Act 1986, which makes it an offence for a person to use, and I'm quoting now, threatening, abusive or insulting words or behaviour that causes or is likely to cause another person harassment, alarm or distress. This law has been revised over the years to include language that is deemed to incite racial and religious hatred, as well as hatred on the grounds of sexual orientation and language that encourages terrorism so we've got some quite robust kind of laws there so it's set out so is that is that enough um i mean i think there's always ways that we can debate the nuances i mean certainly some of the legislation introduced uh, regarding terrorism and prevent and things like that i i think you can make some arguments that some of that could be could, could be certainly used like I don't know. I guess it's like, what what do you define as sort of encouraging or supporting terrorism? There's definitely nuances there. If yeah. I say, not that I'm giving a position on this, but if I were to say, oh yeah, it's totally fine for Hamas to bomb Israel because they because of Israel's treatment of Palestinians in the West Bank and so on, um, that could be perhaps construed as as supporting terrorism. It, but I would personally say that is something that falls under the, yeah. the lens of free speech and freedom of expression. You should be able to. But none of this stuff yeah. is static, right? 
Yeah, this is and, what's and, interesting and that, about it. I mean, even like anti-Semitism, you, you just you know you, you just spoke about Hamas. You know, the definition of what anti-Semitism is different now than it was ten years yes. ago. So things like yeah. the, you know you know before nineteen ninety eight, there were different kind of human rights laws. You know, in America, no, there are. I mean, at the moment, there's been a um, a new law that was supposed to be passed in Switzerland eighteen months ago about discrimination and hate speech, particularly for LGBTQ people, which was opposed by right-wing parties and then got reversed and they ended up holding a referendum and 63% of people did vote in favour of the new law. The opposition mm. councils are saying it's gagging people in infringement on their rights. I guess, I guess it's an odd position to say, please let me defend my right to be homophobic, racist, yeah, I transphobic, think- isn't it? It's an, I mean, the absurdity of it all is I don't see how that opinion has gained much ground, but it clearly has done all across the planet. You know, it's ridiculous to try and pretend that, that free speech can ever be absolute. I mean, clearly there are, there should be, you know, you can't necessarily just fully separate something that is said from action, right? Like, you know, someone like, uh, an example that I've had arguments with free speech advocates in the past is Alex Jones, right? Alex Jones, in my view, yeah. it was right for him to be censored because he put out information that the Sandy Hook families had faked the, the murder of their children. Yeah. Because of that, they were receiving harassment, death threats, had to move house, had to change their identities and so on. So Alex Jones, Alex Jones is a American uh, conspiracy, it, theorist. conspiracy theorist based. And he, he was kind of the, one of the real... I guess, forerunners in this whole kind of movement in, in America. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, and host of InfoWars. InfoWars, yeah. So I, I, I don't think that it's... I would never say, like, I would ever be a free speech absolutist because clearly there are certain types of language that can only really um, be used in order to, to either directly or indirectly inspire violence or, um, I suppose, try and, and be be used in a way to, to persecute minority groups. Yeah. As you just said as well with the Swiss example is that's on society to kind of negotiate and, and work out like where we draw the line. But certainly, it, you know, it's ridiculous to say that there is no line because clearly, you know, that there needs to be a line drawn somewhere. Even America with the First Amendment, they don't allow every single kind of speech under the sun. You know, if you slander someone, if you dock someone so give up their personal information and so on that that is illegal so you know i think it is just about where we draw the line and, and that can only really be negotiated through society so then uh, so i guess but the, the the wider point is the notion of total libertarian free speech doesn't exist no i mean there's a social contract isn't there and yeah. i think that yeah i mean it's the whole example of oh you can never shout fire in a in a crowded theater right like i don't think there's anyone who could ever argue that so for me as a, as a free speech advocate one of the things i've been passionate about is saying like yeah it is hard it's not something that's set in stone you know these kind of definitions are you know changing and contextual so you know as advocates we should be honest about the challenges and not kind of come in with this sort of certainty I'm just going to interrupt the chat and say that free speech is great in theory but it is often the preserve of newspaper owners and tycoons and those that have the resources and the finances to bring out whole new TV channels. So why don't you join us and chip into the cable to help us hold the powerful to account, spark some great conversations and amplify diverse voices in a real and meaningful way. Cheers. Let's return a little bit to the university stuff if we can. Uh, if course, you yeah. were the dean of Bristol University, um, <laughs> would you know platform any speakers? And if so, who 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 would they be, and what what kind of views would they represent? 
So, I mean, again, I, I can only really give that answer based on a kind of subjective frame, I, I suppose. I mean, I guess with the university, it's easier, actually, because they have certain policies. So guarding the protection of marginalized students. But again, how you use that and how you kind of define that is is kind of contextual. And it's, and it's a really difficult question to answer. Um, you know, and yeah, I, I know it's sort of not not... I'm just trying, I'm racking my brain. Um, I suppose. So I guess would your instinct be? Because for me, it's also about facilitating. It's like, what do you want to get out of having an event, right? Like yeah. that, that for me is what should be the most important thing. And that's what I always think when I organize events is why do we have the speaker? What are we trying to get out of that yeah. speaker? And how you manage it. If you're it, having yeah. an event purely to galvanize, to upset, to annoy, to create controversy, um, and there's not like a clear sort of, sort of discursive element to yeah. it, and you can't present evidence that, for example, a very controversial speaker won't be challenged and therefore you can kind of make the argument that they're just there in order to say something outrageous. I would say that is more of a basis to be like, well, you know, perhaps that event's not not appropriate. That's key. I think what you what you just said then about challenge, where perhaps some people get this debate and conversation wrong. And, you know, I, I've had it. I've had people even on this show, um, people responding to some people I've interviewed and and saying, why are you giving a platform? And my response is always, I'm not giving a platform to anybody. I'm having a conversation and an interview. And actually, mm. you know, there's a reason why Boris Johnson avoided being interviewed by Andrew Neil before the election was because, and regardless that, you know, Andrew Neil's politics, you know, probably personally lean a bit right, was because he knew that he was going to get a grill in. That's not giving mm. him a platform. Mm. That's called an interview. And I think it's in the same principle, you're right. If you have someone left unfettered and unchallenged, then that is a platform. But actually, if the platform is managed... And there are people asking questions, or there is a counter view. Then mm. that's slightly different, isn't it, than just giving somebody a platform? A lot of what people say is, "Oh, yeah, you know, get a Nazi or someone on the far right, or, or a, yeah. you know, horrendous racist, and and then get them to be grilled, you know, and and have their ideas torn apart." And of course, in an ideal world, that would be what would happen. You'd get a racist; they'd come up and say, "Yeah, I'm racist," and go off on how black people have a low IQ or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And then someone in the audience would be like, no, that's completely wrong. Here's why you're wrong. And just go through point by point and, and show them up for being ridiculous. But that's just simply not, not the reality of like how discourse and debates sort of, uh, and events work. So again, there's a lot of expectation there to say to students or young people, like you have to be the person who is holding this person account, someone who is, mm they know all the talking points, they have their arguments all lined up. And it's hard to say that a student just showing up to an event is, is adequately equipped to kind of... Um... But could you not have it as a panel when you've got somebody with a strong count of view that is... The one thing I always I always go back to, and I've said this before, is that I always remember when Nick Griffin from the BMP was on Question yeah, yeah, Time, yeah. right? And everyone was like, how dare you put him on this side? And do you know what? It was the best advert to avoid being yes. a far-right politics because he was so out of his depth. His arguments were so weak. He was just utterly yeah. exposed and he was held to the light. And that, to me, I sort of see as a little bit of a barometer on this stuff that if it's managed and done in the right way then actually yeah. what have you got to be scared of and I would agree I think panel events are absolutely fantastic we had a panel event last year um, about anti-semitism versus anti-zionism to say is it anti-semitic to be anti-zionist that was amazing and that was really diverse and I came away from yeah. that being able to have informed my opinion but unfortunately when it comes to really controversial stuff it is just, it, it is very hard. It's hard to do. Yeah. It's hard to get those real diverse opinions there because, you know, if it's really controversial, quite oftentimes people won't 
won't want that. And, and a lot of the time, people who are these really kind of firebrand sort of controversial speakers don't actually really like to be necessarily challenged. To what extent is it acceptable to offer a platform or offer legitimacy or or even allow, right, yeah. to publish uh, certain things that people say that is directly going against the best interests of public health and public safety? I had one on this show. I did interviews of all the Bristol mayoral okay. candidates, one of which yes. was the Reform UK which is what Brexit rebranded as. Yeah, you know, it was we, we had to be very careful how that was edited and what we put out because he was somebody who was very much a COVID denier and I wanted to, you know, present his view, challenge it as well. But also there was some stuff he said that we can't leave that in. It's irresponsible. Yeah. Then there's always editorial decisions on this stuff that take place in journalism and media like every day. And it's, it's tricky and people don't always get it right. But I think that it's easier if something's true or false. And I think we've mm. even got into that space here when we've, there's been debates, hasn't there, particularly around uh, the environment, where just because somebody holds an opinion doesn't mean that opinion is as valid as some, that's another opinion. Yeah. I, I blame I blame a bit of postmodernism on this stuff, where it's kind of become this every opinion is e- of equal value when they're not, are they? Yeah, I, I'd have to disagree. Well, I, I wouldn't say it was postmodernism. I think oftentimes the the thing that I'm most skeptical of, coming back to it again, is is that financial element. Yeah. You know, if you look at the people who campaign against climate activism, mm-hmm. you know, where are they getting their funding from? Are they getting their funding from grassroots, sincere, you know, that the, the population at large who sincerely no, they're getting they're getting that money from special interests. Big corp, yeah, of course. And and for me, I mean, I'd love to talk about this as well, the free speech union is there's there's a suggestion there of I mean, I've got a lot of personal involvement in that, which I'd I'd absolutely love to go into. Yeah. <laughs> a big reason that I caused the hullabaloo about that was because it was just such a clear example of astroturfing where individuals come in and say, Yeah, we're representing this constituency of people, but in fact the money that they are using in order to, you know, manufacture this discourse is coming from very much top down. Yeah. Is the charge that key speakers or people that are being put in the front line to either present views, debate, I guess they're kind of hired hands or they're 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 the face of yeah, big I mean, mark population yes. campaigns that have a specific agenda at play. Yes. So preface this by saying there are also people on the left like that, you know, Russia Today, some of the, the Chinese, uh, you know, People's Daily, that kind of thing, 100% get left-wing voices to come in and give legitimacy to their respective governments and constantly criticise the West. However, if you think about it, like, other other than those kind of examples, like, in a, in a which wealthy individual is going to fund grassroots left-wing activism and left-wing speakers nobody because basically all of what they're saying is going directly against the interests of the people with capital and the people who have the influence in these industries so that's what trump would say though wouldn't he trump would say it's the you know it's the the, the google the silicon valley boys that they're all a bit left and a bit hippie and they're the ones that are now trying to control do you know what I mean? But they're not, though. That's the thing, because when you look at that, you, yeah, they're absolutely like the kind of virtue signaling corporations, right? That could, yeah, you could definitely see that as kind of a flip side. But again, they're not, they're not leftists. They're happy to play the identity politics and say, oh, yeah, you know, IBM, yes, we help develop systems for Germans to help carry out the Holocaust during the Second World War, but IBM is pro LGBT. It's like, no, <laughs> you're not. You're using that as, as marketing yeah. cynically. And people think that that's the same as being left wing, but sure. it's not. Long hair does not a hippie make, I think is what someone said. Indeed. And, and I really think something that isn't talked about enough in free speech is the, the real threat of astroturf. Astroturfing, this is a dictionary definition, is this deception practice of presenting an orchestrated marketing or PR campaign in the guise 
of unsolicited comments from members of the public. So in effect, that basically means that someone is sent out to spin a yarn, you know, often, often a grassroots movement, but is fake ultimately in their... Yeah, like an AstroTurf football pitch. Yeah, so there's no real, right. it's not real. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a big problem. For me, is it free speech to buy your way into a platform? Yeah. yeah is that yeah, free yeah. speech? So you is think it, so? There's, so you, there's 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 money behind this stuff. That there's agendas at play. There's 100%, big, yeah, hundred percent. Give me some examples. Everyone, Give me some examples. To go with my experience, I was contacted in my capacity in the Free Speech Society, saying, you know, we we want to work with you. Um, there's this new national free speech initiative for young people. This is Toby Young's thing, is that this right? This is Toby yeah. Young's thing, yeah. So who yeah. is an uh, old mate of Boris and Cameron from Eton, I think, isn't he Toby Young? Yes, yeah. he is. And yeah. so he was He was working with the Office of Student Affairs, I think he was working for, yeah. but he was essentially cancelled, yes, he was, yeah. for some of his views on eugenics and race and IQ. So anyway, this, this organisation reached out to me, you know, I'm a bit sceptical, especially when I look up Toby Young, but I think, hey, you know, give it a go. It's better to come along to this initiative and be the only left-wing voice in the room than to not come at all. Yeah. To my surprise, when I got there, there were a lot of like-minded young people. Like, yes, there were young people who who were the Jordan Peterson types, but then there were also people like me who felt very disenfranchised from the broader sort of political discourse and also the free speech discourse who were like, yeah. you know, wanted to offer that perspective. And we were told very much, this is grassroots. You will decide the policy that is taken forward. You'll decide the name. And as the project came on it just became very clear that those things like the name of the project the the specific type of issues they wanted to talk about and address were clearly predetermined beforehand and those of us who wanted to see another kind of organization that wasn't sort of so wound up in the culture war and that wasn't so intrinsically tied with the free speech union but we were prevented from doing that so that's why we uh we, we got in contact with the guardian to get our side of the story out because we felt it was wrong for a free speech initiative supposedly by and for young people to have consistently ignored the wishes of a large chunk of the people involved in the project you know obviously i'm simplifying it they've got enough money to to launch a whole national initiative just you know that was a real a real eye opener for me of like oh actually there are people who have specific interest and intentions in how to shape conversations like i don't want to be the token leftist i don't want to be someone who is in any way legitimizing this when i don't think it's right and also slightly hyperbolic as well once you start to drill into the numbers and drill into the detail this reaction to the cancel culture of people being shut down and the speakers being withdrawn and books being taken from syllabuses by left-wing academics and we need to do something Mm. about this this you know this is i think where the the whole kind of drive behind this initiative comes from. And I think having done actual real kind of data and research, there were Mm. only something like about six events that were cancelled. So it's founded on complete lack of evidence anyway. Yeah, I mean, that would be my view. There are massive issues with young people, including in university, that, yeah, the sort of cancel culture element is is a small part of that. Mm. But, yeah, the way it's weaponised at the moment is totally... I don't think anyone's denying that there is a a slight perhaps group think or there is a kind of sense people leaning towards that way. But when you just look at the pure... So I've got some figures here. This is from BBC Reality Check, who did a freedom of information request to British universities and basically found out that 
from the responses of 120 universities, they found that since 2010, so in the last 15 years, there had been seven student complaints about course content being in some way offensive or inappropriate. Uh, four resulted in action being taken. There were six occasions on which universities cancelled speakers as a result of complaints, and there were no instances of books being removed or banned. I mean, mm. that's minuscule. And you wouldn't think that if you were reading the red top papers, would you? Or even the Telegraph or, or the Times, you wouldn't. Well, I know, but I mean, you know, that that's because these people kind of all rub shoulders in the same <laughs> in yeah. the same circles, really. I mean, for me, the issue that, that we've not spoken about, the free speech issue of our time, without question, is the Police Crime Commission and Sentencing Bill. Yeah. Without without a shadow of a doubt, is the most um, pressing concern for young people regarding our free speech. You know, when you think about the things that are important to young people, students or, or otherwise, it's these mass protests about the environment, about racial injustice, about inequity. And, you know, yeah. it's just yet another... So this is a sleight of hand move then, yeah? This is a kind of, let's keep the conversation at this, yeah? Of course. And then while we're keeping the conversation at this, let's chuck this bill in, Unless let's actually remove some real human rights, which obviously in a city like Bristol, I don't know if you went there, you know, there's been lots and lots of, yeah, yeah, you, know, was, you were presumably there, yeah? Yeah, yeah. You know, Bristol is, is an incredible city and it shaped my politics and it shaped the politics of, of what we do at the Bristol Free Speech Society, I think, as well. I mean, not all of my colleagues on the committee would, would agree <laughs> with, sure. with my sentiments on it. But, you know, nonetheless, I think that the, the toppling of Colston, that, that impacted us all very deeply, sparked huge discussions. And then, yeah, when the bill came in, and it was huge, and, and it was huge for, the, for this city. But none of that's gone away. You know, this is much more of a comfortable footing for the government to be pushing the conversation. AstroTurfed, again, it's the artificial nature of of shaping the conversation in a certain way when actually perhaps we might be inclined to think that there are more pressing issues like the fact that you can potentially go to 10 years for causing annoyance, banging a drama, a protest, right? Yeah. Oh, no, sorry, not 10 years. That's 10 years for a statue. 10 years for sorry. a statue. But you could effectively, I could throw you in the docks and I could then throw a statue and I'd get more for the statue than I would throw you Right, in the docks, yes, yeah? yes. I guess a count of you would be that partly the reason this bill has been brought in is because there's a fear now that young people have cottoned onto the game or people are deconstructing the role of this country in colonialism, the transatlantic slave trade and how that echoes mm. to the current day. Mm. And, and people are kind of rising up now and asking questions and the Pandora's box has come off and, and, and they're panicking. Yeah. And this is a, clearly 100%. an attempt to push the lid back down. Yeah, 100%. And again, Bristol is a prime example. of Our city was originally founded by slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no two... And it's so silly because I really don't think it's, it, it's not an indictment on you or I, you know, we weren't alive then, but it doesn't cost much to just be like, yeah, you know what, some of the inequity now will of course have come from this historical place, but yeah. for whatever reason, whether it's the Conservative Party just wanting to, you know, toe the line with what their, their support base wants them to say, yeah. there seems this inability to be able to withstand criticisms for some of these figures that we revere, like Winston Churchill. I mean, you know, yeah, the, the dude won us World War Two. That's great, but he also, you know, exacerbated the Bengal famine. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand why we're so allergic to nuance. Why can't you hold two positions? Yeah, but people do kind of struggle with that. And with the universities itself, in the context of protest speeches, and they are related. And it's good you brought up the bill. The fear is often not the speech itself; it's what the impact the speech has upon young people, and then what young people do after. 
which is often, you know, if you look at a lot of protest movements in history and across the globe, have started by great orators. There is a fear of the orator a bit, I think. And I think that that's probably cutting from both sides now, where perhaps traditionally it's been used to in a responsible way. I mean, the six organisations, for example, that the NUS, the National Union of Students, there is a no platform list, but they are the British National Party, the English Defence League, uh, the Muslim Public Affairs Committee, National Action, which is a kind of far-right group, yeah. Hizut Tahir and Al-Muharun. I've probably pronounced this wrong, so apologies. So there is a no-platform list, but all those would be considered, I guess... Well, they're illegal organisations. Illegal organisations, like yeah. Well, you know, the British National Party and EDL are not illegal organisations, you know, but they are, you know, I guess some people would see them as politically suspect. But all of them would be seen on the extremism end, on the right extremism end, Yeah. You know, when I joined the society, I was very much had this more free speech absolutist view and would be very much council culture. Yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, now, like from from my experiences, I do have to agree with you. I mean, it's it's yes, there are there are issues. There are like, you know, there there is a huge amount of toxicity in certain parts of student politics. Do not get me wrong. Yeah. Do not yeah. I mean, minute, yeah, I don't think wrong. that's OK to kind of accept that that, that is that, that, that I see yeah. that yeah, that is there, isn't it? It is. It is. But. You know, I don't. I, I. I. think that the way that it is often discussed in the kind of cultural mainstream is does not reflect the reality on the ground. It's hyperbolic, yeah. Yeah, and also to a certain extent that the government have really missed the zeitgeist anyway, because we ain't been on campus for for like two <laughs> yeah. months. Uh, sorry, two years rather. These people do exist. They do, but there's such a minority of people on campus. There, is, there is a very vocal percentage of people that participate in this kind of in inverted commas cancel culture who who try and and what's your view on them well i don't really get on with them i mean some of them uh i don't know if i should be no, specific. Go on, just be frank, certain, be frank yeah uh so the, the socialist workers party and groups like that who again in terms of the astroturfing you can make an interesting comparison there and say actually you know, in a sense, a lot of these groups get a lot of funding and support from outside of university. Mm -hmm. And certainly at protests where they've been before, you know, they've had people at the protests who aren't even students. Yeah, they're an organisation that want to recruit people. And I think they've always been, there's always I've, been a presence in uh, universities. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I've been shouted at by members of that group in the street before in Bristol. Um, I was going on to a, a, a hear Jeremy Corbyn speak and someone shouted at me like, oh, whose side are you on today? And it's like, yeah, I, you know, I... I I'm a member of the Labour Party. Yeah, okay. Um, look, politics doesn't have to be a blood sport. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds great what you're doing at the free speech stuff. I'd, I'd quite like to come down, actually. And 100%. It's also important for for different positions in the city because there is a quite a strong vocal, I would say, traditional Bristolian voice in the city mm. that aren't happy with students protesting for Kill the Bill no. or Black Lives Matter and see the city centre as being taken over by radical young leftists. Yeah. So that's their view. But they probably never yeah. get a chance to have a conversation with many students. So I just wonder if it could be good to set up some managed conversation where we look for sort of positions of challenge, but positions of understanding as well, because I think yeah. that's important. No, I'd, I'd love that. I'd, I'd think that'd be absolutely fantastic. I mean... Um... Yeah. And, and you're right. I have, you know, I've seen a lot of that on social media. It makes me sad because, you know, we, I think a lot of us as young people, we love this city yeah. for, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, it's just sad that, yeah, it's sad that people, I understand why, you know, it's like the people from oftentimes the South or yeah. London or whatever coming in and trashing up their city yeah. and then going back home to wherever they live in the home counties. 
and then it being portrayed in the media as Bristol are doing this. And they're like, Bristol's not doing this. They're all bloody students from everywhere. That's the kind of, that's the sense of some parts of the city. Not all, but certainly some parts of the city. And I think that what I do know is, and in a lot of work I do, is very rarely direct conversations take place without the filter of the media or being interpreted. And I think that would be really, really quite powerful to do something like that. Yeah, definitely. When I was a student, I was just getting off my face most of the time. And I feel like I've missed out on a whole world. Maybe maybe it didn't um, exist then. I don't know. The difference is now is like, I guess young people have learned to be off their face and also be productive. <laughs> Certainly, That's yeah. a great way to leave it, Harry. Love it. Yeah. It's been really, really good. I've really enjoyed it. And I hope you no have. Worries. And good luck yeah. with everything you do. Talk about it, mate. Take care. Yeah, and you, mate. Pleasure. So that's it from this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked. Many thanks to Harry Walker and we'll be back next time with another great guest and a brilliant topic. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes and if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable along with 2,000 others to create a new kind of media for the city.